Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. We've a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. This week, the story is about where the first story first steps off to the side to fill in a few blanks. And in the same fashion we employed when we were discussing the prequel trilogy over a number of podcasts ago, we are counting down our top six favorite things about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So, Ross, what is the the legacy of this movie overall? What does the, the existence of this movie... Uh, mean to greater Star Wars writ large? I think the true feat of this film, um, maybe not necessarily um, what it means to greater Star Wars at large, although I, I would say that's, that's pretty apt, uh, is the fact that they did the impossible. They somehow found a way to enrich, in particular, our the one that started it all, Star yeah. Wars, before A New Hope was even A New Hope. Uh, they were able to tell a story from <clears throat> part of the crawl. And so that is something truly incredible. And the fact that it fits perfectly and makes so much sense uh, and ultimately is, um, it, it, is just used to just enrich the galaxy even further and make those just straight line connections that make sense. And it feels so lived in because it just aligns perfectly in that regard. It doesn't feel like it was made in 2016. It feels like it was made in 1977. So it's, it's incredible in that regard. What are your expectations for similarities on our lists? Because more than usual, when I was making this list, I realized as much as I love this movie, it is a one-off. And the best things about it are, are pretty objectively true and they appear to be yeah. quite obvious. I would definitely agree with that. I think that we're gonna have some, at the very least um, one that's the exact same um, and one that is extremely similar. Uh, and I think that there's a decent chance that the others ones will be similar, but at the same time, uh, I'm not too sure. Uh, it's Yeah, it's a great movie with a bunch of highlights, but I also think that you and I sometimes interpret this list a little differently. True. Uh, and I tried to kind of stick to that uh, because I was almost drawn to doing it the way that you usually do it, which I find is uh, a little bit more the way that we view the rest of our lists and our rankings, uh, whereas I do this a little bit more as referring to a specific part of the film. Um, plot wise as yeah. opposed to not necessarily just like functionally in some instances like like for example if we were talking about the worst things about solo i could talk about lighting but i wouldn't say that because that's like but that's kind of the way that you sometimes take this task and i sure. still tried to um take it the way that i usually do with plot because i did find even more than anything um if you take in those functional elements there are some that just pop out so much that it would be very, very easy uh, to, to focus on um, the, the staples that make up the, the film, but not necessarily the, the, the story itself. Well, my number six is exactly what you're describing has been my pattern in the past. And it's just their ability to recapture the vibes. You've kind of already alluded to that already. This is only the mm. second Star Wars film post-Disney acquisition. And if you'll remember... Uh, at the time of those first two releases, there was a lot of talk about whether or not they're going to be able to recapture the magic. I'm doing air quotes. And Force Awakens did a pretty good job. I think they probably did better than the prequels did of recapturing that like initial 
ineffable Star Wars quality, but then this movie just like jumps off the friggin' cliff to the nth degree. The grit of specifically A New Hope is so present in, in Rogue One. And it feels fresh, and it feels like a really natural genre evolution of what we're used to with Star Wars as well, but also inextricably, fundamentally, the essence of Star Wars, um, even more so, I think, ultimately, than the sequel trilogy. And so that's a that's a great achievement. My number six is The Vibes. And I think that's a really good thing. I think it's very important. It needed to be the exact vibes in the same way that Mandalorian needs to mirror those vibes of the original trilogy more than the sequel trilogy. Yes. And it does need to mirror them of the sequel trilogy, but time is, uh, uh, time's a vector in that regard. And so it makes sense for there to be this transitionary period over time. And George Lucas wanted that with the prequels, but that's not something that you have the option to be creative with in this film. Right. You have a set specific, um, not necessarily the characters themselves, but same grouping of characters. You have the the rebel spies versus the head of the empire uh, and those in charge in particular of the Death Star. Yes. And those are the same main characters. And well, what do you find out? It's also the exact same time. And so it, you need to be able to capture that. And the fact that they do is is so, so, so impressive. And they do it on many different worlds. They don't just have like it back on Tatooine. And that's the reason that it feels like it. Uh, although we're back on Yavin. But I think Yavin is, a well, obviously, it's a perfect choice plot wise. But also, it's a really great choice because it has a little bit more of an indescribable uh, Star Wars feeling to it as it's... A, Aside from Tatooine, where we spend the most time of a, on a planetary surface, or the only other place we plant, we spend is a planetary surface in A New Hope. Right. But Tatooine overshadows it so much, and so it adds that other element. To, oh, that's very smart to go about it by using Yavin. Um, it's just, yeah, everything you said, and I mean, it really is the main fundamental purpose of the movie um, to, to kind of recapture those those vibes, but to tell a, a great one-off story and it. It's out of the park. And in that sense, it's kind of the first Star Wars period piece because while the prequel trilogy goes back in time, and again, I'm using air quotes, that's still a fictional universe that has yet to be developed or even um, visualized. Mm. And so we are, we are, in fact, held within the confines of a pre-existing world uh, and a, a pre-existing point of time in that world. And you have to deal within those regulations. And... I think they did uh, a lovely job. And also, I, I completely agree, a pre-existing war. That's, yes. that's, I mean, Star Wars right in the title, but it's the fact that, like you said, so many period pieces, well, so many period pieces are war films, mm -hmm. and it has such a war vibe to it and the grittiness, and that comes from the vibes. And so, yeah, absolutely makes complete sense. What is your sixth uh, favorite thing about Rogue One? My sixth favorite thing... Uh, would be that uh, you're a hard man to find, Galen or so. Mm. Uh, and that entire introduction to the film, the introduction to the characters of Krennic and Galen, you see this family man who's identified as being brilliant and he's faking like, oh, I've lost my mind. And like, oh, my wife died. Uh, and he's just like, he's lying and he's doing a shitty job. But at the same time, you clearly, you know who this guy is and what matters to him. And you have Krennic flanked by these death troopers. And he's just, he, he's killing, he kills Lyra. 
uh, and they have got no problem taking out Jin when they want to find her. And the way that the Death Troopers are just like picking up the like the toy Stormtrooper. Uh, Lamu is one of the coolest uh, environments that we've seen in Star Wars. Uh, we, yeah. we did highlight that before as an honorable mention. Uh, and I think this is just a really eerie but enriching introduction to a film, seeing as we don't. I personally don't have a ton of attachment to all of these characters, but the backbone of the film is the tension between Krennic and the Urso family. And it's established right here and it ends in a very satisfactory way too. So uh, having that as a kind of an emotional backbone to something that's really built around like the Death Star and linking it up to like this previous like big saga and big war. Uh, I do think this is uh executed extremely well to get things going we don't talk a lot about galen or so who is arguably a top three most important character in this movie um and mads mickelson is so wonderful the mm. character just kind of serves as like a, a a human uh macguffin he's just kind of like a driving point for the plot and yet there's also this like emotional uh connection to the protagonist and so that's important but it would be neat, I guess, to learn a little bit more about the background of, of Galen or Snow. And I kind of wonder if if maybe an opportunity to tell another great Star Wars romance is through the story of, of Galen and Lyra. Well, I don't know about that side of things, uh, but in terms of the story of Galen Urso and a backstory, uh, Catalyst is one of the novels that is, I haven't read it yet. It's, it's on my I'd like to read it soon. Uh, I'm still in, in some High Republic. High Republic's moving at, a, at a, a pace that's been tough to kind of keep up with in terms of content that, as it's been coming out. Uh, but I, I want to go back and read Catalyst because Catalyst is a novel that is pretty widely regarded as being the best movie companion piece okay. uh, that Star Wars has ever done. Oh, wow. And that it deeply enriches the story of Rogue One, in particular, the relationship between Krennic and the Erso family. Uh, and then you see the flashback and them on like at their uh, Coruscant apartment um, later in this film. And so it's like it's it's it has a bunch of really great tie ins. And I know of some, but I do want to read that book because, like you said, I think it's 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 rich for some good stories there to learn more about these people who are ultimately so important in the the big picture of, well, the, the Star Wars saga. Well, and this movie is decidedly not about the backgrounds of the characters and, mm. and granted we are about to do that with the Cassian and Andor show and so we are going to start to build upon these people as they've done in novelizations for say the Urso family or for director Krennic I've often said I'd like to see more of him but the the real premise of the movie is just kind of the bystanders who you don't need a lot of background on in order for the plot to go forward, as long as we're talking about like period pieces and war movies. A good example is Dunkirk. The, these characters very decidedly don't have backstories because they're supposed to just represent the people. And that's a tricky device in, in serious filmmaking. And it's really only useful in serious filmmaking. But I think they did it nicely here. Yeah, like one fighter with a sharp stick can win the day. That's Jin what I'm getting that. at. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really about just like, and in the end, like Cassian and Jin, they just, they, they hug it out, but like everyone dies. And I mean, obviously we know we know that, but the, the killing of everybody yes. goes back to that reset point where it's like, okay, yeah, now like all these these stories are over. This is kind of what you get. But yeah, we're going to see that in, Ca in Andor and that's going to be great. Uh, and we did chat about this, I think on the last podcast that um, 
sorry, uh, the Krennic is very, very likely to be in Andor. So that's encouraging. Well, uh, he is my number five uh, in this Rogue One list. Just the perfect generally existence of director Krennic. Until this character, Star Wars has kind of lacked for a villain who was both like sniveling and spineless where necessary, but also deeply threatening where necessary. Like you fully believe in his capacity for evil. There's no question this guy is not redeemable. He is the bad guy that he purports to be. And yet it's abundantly clear that he's not really the big bad of the era itself. He's just like a cog in the machine. And I think it's smart to make the central villain of this movie one of those forgotten people. Because as I said, it's a movie about the forgotten people in the greater story. And obviously Ben Mendelsohn's performance is spectacular. He's just so good. And I can't wait to see him again in another capacity. Because I think the character has, has a lot to offer. But I really like this idea of... I mean, you could argue like the Viceroy or like Watto, but I like this character, the, the idea of this character who's like, who and Hawks, who wants to be, who wants more credit for his villainy, but isn't getting what he thinks he's due. Um, and, you know, Hawks is actually a pretty good example, and that's a very good actor, but I don't know. It's there's different. Some, there's, it is different. And there's more, you have more sympathy for Hawks than you do for, oh. for Critic. I, I disagree. I okay. think that it, it can really depend. I mean, Hux has a level of he's spoiled and but he's like when he gives his speech in The Force Awakens, it's so like Nazi-esque. You maybe feel a little bit better, worse for Hux by the time The Rise of Skywalker comes around. But there's something with Krennic where it's just his level, like you don't like him at all. He's horrible. But in that same vein, he's just, he's so pathetic. Yes. And the fact that he clearly has worked hard and and is trying to do a good job, but at the same time, his pompous nature and need to do a good job also gets in the way of him being able to be actually taken seriously. Right. Um, and I've seen this talked about before, um, and it's it's a it just and so it's it's not an original thought of mine, but the fact that like very specifically, his uniform does not have a cape. The mm. cape is aftermarket. He also does not have a standard issue Imperial Blaster. Everything he has is he gets better stuff so that he can feel like he's a higher ranking official that he would get, oh, I get this custom stuff. No, you don't. Right. You just buy it yourself, dude. <laughs> and like, That's so interesting. In particular, his shuttle choice is also similar. Uh, like he, he goes out of his way to just make everybody think that he's more important than he is. But isn't that such he just a... just wants that credit. That's such a relatable middle management cliche these people who like, who who like work at you know target or something and they're just like a mid-tier person and they really want to flex that they're like more powerful than you and it comes off kind of mm -hmm. pathetic and sad but yeah. i mean he's he's also a murderer and so it's not a perfect <laughs> comparison but like uh you're right I, th I just think that that dynamic and the fact that he is the main villain where huck mm. certainly was not is a really inter really interesting choice for this movie. He also has a perfect death. Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. So like poetic and in, in, in nature, and just the shot is incredible. Oh my god, just the look on his face, and then the citadel just being like just lobbed off. What's your number five? My number five is uh, 
it's kind of a similar one in terms of being about characters, but really about the introduction of Chirrutimway and Baze Malvis. Okay. Uh, and just the way that it is, like, what are these? Like, they, they're beggars, they're outside, like, Kyber Temple, and so, but, like, they're, like, Jin's trying to get a little bit of information. He's he's trying to like he's like oh I'll uh, I'll I'll, get, I'll take your Kyber crystal uh, and I'll tell you your fortune and it's just like, like what are the like this is it's really weird behavior but it's because Jeddah is just completely gone to shit and these monks are busking basically yeah uh, and as opposed to like having a fortune to told for the exchange, it just so happens Chirrut can also take out all the stormtroopers for you and he can do that for you as the favor. And it's just such a great moment. And I really like the fact that it's a use of a force sensitive character and being able to really see force sensitivity without being a Jedi and without being somebody who truly can harness the force in the same way, but somebody who is able to connect with it in, in an interesting sort of way. And at the same time, the way that Baze is introduced as like rolling his eyes as Chirrut and then also taking out all the stormtroopers who after Chirrut takes out a bunch and then a, a bunch more line up, he, he wipes out a whole row of them. And so it just shows this great dynamic. It's just overall, um, it, pulls off this really interesting, like, oh, these two are, uh, like, what are the stories and what are the things that these guys have done throughout their years? And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a great introduction. And although the characters, uh, we don't, we get to see a, a good finish to their story. Um, I think the best part about it is their introduction because it just poses so many questions and is, is funny at the same time. Well, they play a couple of really important roles in Star Wars. One of them being that, uh, buddies are implicit to Star Wars, and they bring mm. they bring buddydom into this movie. They're also much needed uh, comedic relief. Like they're much, yes. they're a million percent funnier than every other character in the film, uh, except for K two. K two's great as well. Oh, that's a very good point. And he's he's kind of a lone wolf. Um, but uh, the dynamic between them is really good. I also really like what you said about about bringing force sensitivity into the movie but outside of jedi -dom. Like, this movie does a lot, actually, to develop what the Force is ideologically and explaining mm. explaining that for us. I, th I think that you can point to Rogue One anytime the layman is arguing the the parameters of what makes a Jedi a Jedi. You can always, you can always highlight this movie as a perfect example of how the Force and accessibility of the Force is a spectrum. And... Mm. Chirrut doesn't need to be not a character we need, we need to see again, but he's he's cool as fuck in this movie. Um, Baze is not a character that I think about too often, but he is he's better than Bodhi, and and he's really yeah. he's really good as a partner to Chirrut in the movie. Yeah, no, we always talk about how Bodhi uh, it could have just been a transmission interception of sorts, and yes. you, you don't really need Bodhi, and somebody else can can be a pilot in that regard. Right. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, Baze, I think, is uh, a little underrated because of how well he works off of Chirrut. And I don't need to see them again, but I wouldn't mind seeing them again. To be honest, I think it'd be cool to see them in something like The Bad Batch. Sure. I think that actually is a really logical place for them to show up uh, in this time period where uh, a bunch of people who are believers of the Jedi are now being exiled and uh, either killed or turned into beggars and, and buskers. So, out of the question, we could see them in um, probably not Cassian, I guess, because they just meet in Rogue One. But what about that, what about yeah. Obi Wan? The timeline's similar. Uh, 
It, the timeline, uh, I mean, it could definitely work. Uh, it would be um, it'd be interesting if they went to Jeddah. I mean, there's it's a it's probably an, it would have been an imperial hotbed, so it wouldn't have been ideal for Obi Wan to go there. But right. at the same time, it's so strong in the light side of the Force that there could be reason for him to need to go there. So I don't know. That could be cool. And uh, they could be message carriers. Uh, it, there's a lot of logic that you could draw out as to how these guys could show up again. My number four is the digital facial recreation of both Grandma Tarkin and Princess Leia. I think it would be very easy to collapse into a pit of a fan's skepticism. It's very prevalent among Star Wars fans, including you and I, to like poke holes in things. Um, I think that's a trap. It's a trap. Um, because the technology, the effects are imperfect, as they always have been. Star Wars at its core is about pushing the limits of movie magic. And I, I know that the first time I saw Leia, before I had the opportunity to poke holes in it, I think I spoke out loud because I couldn't stop being as surprised as I was. Um, it's just, it's this amazing restaging of a gone by uh, movie era, I think. And it, it, they recreated some old movie magic by like bringing in these old faces and really validating uh, the movie that they'd made. And especially once you realize at the end that they're lining up films and it, it becomes mm. really necessary that not only Princess Leia appears in this, but that Carrie Fisher essentially appears in this as you know her. Um, I think it's cool that they had the balls to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Tarkin one was rumored beforehand, but like people made the logical assumption that it's probably just going to be a hologram. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that they were able to make Tarkin look so realistic and he's so important to the plot and he's a big character in the film. And so that is something that I love. And I still think it looks good. Uh, the Leia one. Yeah. It was amazing the first time. Um, and it's still a phenomenal moment. Uh, that's one that I think is the the prime example of uh, following the steps of George Lucas and correct it. Yeah, it is the, you could find somebody you could find, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of creators online. Just anyone in their mom's basement who could who can do a better job at this yeah, point. We've seen and it. especially seeing how short the scene is. I mean, it would also, they have employees who could do it in an afternoon. Yes. It, it just, it, it makes no sense as to why um, you can't go back and touch something like that up because it's such a powerful moment. And it is a little bit off-putting now, but at the same time, the silhouette of her, even before she turns around and then when she does, and the fact that it is so short and like you, you still get, it's a line of, of hope literally. Yep. Uh, and so it really works. Uh, and it gets you like, are they going to go there? Are they going to go there? Uh, and it, yeah, it, it's so important to be able to connect the two pieces as seamlessly as they do is to have these couple characters and to be able to do that just and say, ah, well, screw time. We don't actually need to consider biology and the way people age and the fact that she's no longer alive. Right. <laughs> um, although that was right around this time, but that also added to the power of it. She had just passed away. So the second time I saw this, I mean, it was, um, cause yeah, she had uh, passed away about a week after it. Afterward. Out, yeah. These movies were coming yeah, out like a week before Christmas and she, she passed away in the days following Christmas. And so, yeah, yeah Day, that made it all the weirder that the last time we saw Carrie Fisher, it actually wasn't Carrie Fisher. Mm. Yeah. 
But just like the choice to do it. I'd never seen something like that in a movie before, except maybe a scene uh, in Captain America Civil War with, with Tony Stark. But like it didn't, it wasn't quite as as striking as it was here. And so I really thought that it, it deserved a spot on my list. And it's one of those things people like to be a little nitpicky about, and I prefer to celebrate it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. It was a celebrating moment. Number four. My number four would be, this is Admiral Raddus of the Rebel Alliance. Uh, and uh, it's just, it is, okay, we had the trench run. We had the Battle of Endor. Let's do it again with modern graphics. Yeah. Let's do it not just in space. Let's also have it as a space battle and we'll have it within atmosphere so it's daylight and we will also bring back a brand new but equally as excellent Mon Cal to run the show and create this incredible moment that transports you back in time with all this modern technology uh, to be able to have one of the coolest space battles imaginable. But it's also this moment of pure, like it, it's not going well for the rebels uh, and the odds are stacked against them. But then you have this giant backup show up and the way that the you have Blue Squadron, who if you start to put things together, you realize, shit, there's no Blue Squadron in the New Hope. Right. <laughs> and uh, then you, the way that we've talked about it in the past and how the casting choices and the facial hair, everybody feels like they're ripped right out of 1977 or 1983. And it is, it's just such a cool moment. Uh, it's full of hope. Uh, and it starts off this just third act in such a fashion or i shouldn't say starts it off but kicks it to another gear by bringing in the reinforcements of the rebellion and it's also a fantastic line with it is the way you get that kind of shot well and it's like i said earlier it's the recapturing of the vibes that whole sequence mm. like impeccably like the mustache on the guy is right and oh so on point the the minutiae like the details most of us do not recognize that there's no blue leader in A New Hope, and so that means bad things for the fate of this character. Um, but once you know that, it becomes all the richer, and it's just gratifying to know that they took that much care in the minutia of, of the creation of this scene and knowing how important it was to get everything right because of how well people know A New Hope and how precious it is to them really speaks to um, the heart and soul of the movie. And it, it it says that they, I know that the making of this movie was embattled. It's actually a bit of a miracle that it turned out as good as it did. Oh, yeah, um, no kidding. But uh, ultimately, they had some love in the making of this movie. And I think your your number four is a good example of that. Yeah, it, it's, it's really great. And also, you mentioned, like, obviously, the vibes are recapturing. But another thing about, I mean, this is the sequence, per se. But they pull footage that wasn't used and they pull some footage that was used yeah. from A New Hope. Smart. And they have um, the actors uh, from like Gold Squadron and Red Squadron as they look from the 70s in Rogue One. Yeah. And that is like, it's mind melting. Mm -hmm. And I only found out about this a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago maybe, um, that uh, in particular, the one who says, may the force be with you over the intercom uh, to the rest of the squadrons as they're departing is Wedge, which Wedge is not in the film um, because just based on the way Dennis Lawson's history has been with Star Wars uh, since that point. But uh, 
they were able to get the guy who had dubbed over Wedge in the past and does the intercom. Yeah. And so I think it's just it's like, that's so cool. Like you're able to actually pit, fit all those pieces and like they were going to have Biggs Darklighter in there, but like, no, in the deleted scene from A New Hope, he had gone back to Tatooine to try and get his old friend Luke to join him in the rebellion. So he wasn't around for that. And so that's canon then. That's the reason why they didn't do it. They wanted to leave that as an option for canon. And so just like you said, like those little details yeah. and that attention to it and the fact that anybody who's really scared about like, oh, Tony Gilroy, someone who doesn't like Star Wars running a Star Wars thing. In general, I'm not a huge fan of that, but he was surrounded by people because Tony Gilroy in both instances of running Star Wars things has not been the first guy to be on board for it. They've had to replace somebody else. No, and maybe uh, he's not the world's biggest Star Wars fan, but he's a responsible filmmaker. Exactly. He's a responsible filmmaker and clearly knows how to surround himself with the right people and listen to them on the right things. That's right. My number three is uh, something we addressed a little bit earlier. It is their willingness to kill everybody at the end of the movie. I don't... Yep. Uh, necessarily want to give like Disney all the credit here because there have been many examples of them being like gun shy and not doing the provocative thing narrative narratively speaking uh, but they did sign off on it here which I might not have expected for them they had the understanding or it was conveyed to them by Gareth Edwards or somebody else that it, it is essential to the essence of this film there's no reason to make it if everybody doesn't die at the end um it's the right thing. As a storyteller, I mean, it can be really hard and it can be easy to get gun shy uh, away from the thing that is definitive and dark. But Disney made a kamikaze war movie out of a kids franchise here and it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think this is a great choice. It is essentially my choice as well for my number three. Okay. I just chose a particular one and I chose K2SOs uh, as it's the first uh, he's the comedic character. He's the easiest one to avoid killing in the movie. True, yeah. To be able to keep him in the Star Wars canon. He could have survived. And he's he, he's the one that it immediately makes you start to think, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. Is this going to go the way I think it's going to go? Yeah. And also, it's this great moment of like him choosing his weird like friendship with Cassian and the way that Cassian reprogrammed him over just this kind of binary mindset that he's had over so many things. Logically, he shouldn't sacrifice himself, but he does in a way that I, I, it's important to show kind of like they, in the way the droids are humanized a lot in Star Wars. And so I think it's, it's a, a really powerful start to this sequence of all these characters that they've done as good of a job as you can do um, building up their their stories to be a kind of a one-off and to be kind of ignited and then snuffed out in a short amount of time. And it really is, it's pretty intense the way that they all go down. Um, I'm not, once again, I know we shit on them all the time, but I think Bodie's is the lamest dad. This one's for you, Galen. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just blows up. <laughs> well, and the stakes are pretty low because as we said before, these are just kind of like everyday characters and like you, you've grown to like some of them, but it's not really going to rip your heart out when any of them die. Hmm. Except maybe K2SO because he's made you laugh the most times of everybody. And it's weird yeah. to feel that strongly about the death of a droid in particular. Um, but it, it is nonetheless gutsy, and they've also, because it's such an expansive movie universe, they've still found a way to expand on the stories of these characters and bring the actors back. And so it's it's actually pretty low stakes, 
nonetheless, somebody had to have a meeting with higher ups at Disney and be like, listen, I know kids are going to come to this, but literally everyone's going to die. And I bet that was a hard sell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can certainly imagine. And there's variations of it where they didn't all die and there's variations of it where they died differently. Um, but uh, yeah, and for the most of them, they they all pretty much die. I don't remember if, uh, I think Jin survives one of the iterations. Okay. Um, I think she's maybe the only one who survives because she's the, the hero. Iterations. Yeah, but everybody yeah. else, I think, has always, always died. Where um, do you where do you rank K two S O on your list of favorite droids? I don't know if we're going to do that as a podcast someday, but like it seems to me, he's he's kind of number three with a bullet. Um, it's better than BB eight. No. BB eight is just R two in orange. I don't know. BB eight has BB eight has in the Force Awakens. BB eight has a lot of heart. Yeah, he does. Um, he also gets benched in the rest of the trilogy. Yeah, he really does. I think I think it's hard after because you're right. He is uh, an R two replacement, which I, I hate because R two is number one with a bullet. Yeah. Um, and three PO is honorary number two just because he's three PO. I don't know. I would probably put I'd put uh, BB eight and K two pretty close, but I might put K two behind BB eight as number four. Okay. All right. Anything else you want to say about that, or should I move on to number two? Um, just also that Baze uh, and Chirrut have a really good buddy death and the yeah. way that Baze is able to also kind of have that uh, I'm one with the force and the force is with me sort of as he goes out. Well, and it's a little bit corny. This movie is not a love story between Jin and and uh, um, what's his name? Cassian. 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 But there is a tenderness to the relationship and that they yeah. that they die in like a ball of white light, uh, like mm -hmm. kind of embracing each other is beautiful and it's not like yeah. as far as like main character deaths go it's it's not as troubling as as it could have been i suppose although maybe that was in some sense disney washing it up yeah i mean it's troubling but at the same time it's like it's disturbing and peaceful at the same time and so it, it you see cassian's eyes though and that's good acting <laughs> it's peaceful and they win as hero like they die as heroes yeah. and it's like a, it's actually a victory as they die and so that softens the blow too yeah, big time. So my number two is the Vader Rampage. Should I talk about this now? Um, that's my number one. Um, doesn't matter. Okay. May as well talk about it. All right. Let's talk about her now. It is Bruce the Shark getting on the boat in Jaws. It's the towers it's crashing down in Fight Club. It's shitting in a sink in Bridesmaids because it's, it's not just um, exhilarating. It's unforgettable. And, yeah. and I think it's something that maybe you didn't even know quite literally how much you'd been craving it for four decades the 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 witness of the potential of this menace um but i kind of lost my train of thought but like you have been waiting to see this and they're like okay well now we're finally going to show you and it's not just fun to watch it's it's really kind of like like we were just talking about death it, it kind of solidifies this as a movie for adults but it it really recolors the character of darth vader in an enriching way it's everything you want. He is so incredibly menacing. He is, Darth Vader is referred to as like one of the greatest villains of all time. And the, one of the main reasons George Lucas created the prequel trilogy was so that you would understand that as much as he's a villain, he's pathetic. At mm -hmm. the same, and and that's, the, that's the moral of his story. 
Uh, and that's the reason as to why the prequels focus so much on Anakin and wanting you to understand as much as you can about Anakin and how Revenge of the Sith was going to be bloody four or six hours if George Lucas had it his way. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure there wasn't, there was still in that scenario, not going to be a ton of Darth Vader doing this kind of thing. But that does not take away from the fact that we still have always wanted to see this. Yes. This is everything that I've said before, but just in the best, like objectively, in my opinion, the objective best character in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And so it is absolutely incredible the way that you're able to, like you said, recharacterize that with everything you've always thought, but at the same time, unlike Han Solo, where you never wanted to see it, or I personally never wanted to see it, I always, you want to see Darth Vader just demolish people like it's a video game. Yeah. You want him to do everything that you like you couldn't possibly imagine. The you want him to be, and although we hadn't seen this at this point, you want the opposite of Luke Skywalker on crate. You want the opposite of Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi. Um, and then you don't get the opposite with Luke Skywalker Mandalorian. You get a really nice mirror. Um, but you also aren't able to have that moment with Luke Skywalker without first having this moment with Darth Vader. Right. And it is one that connects the scenes so well together. Uh, Vader's entry into the next room. Like the fact that like, just you always can envision like, okay, what did Vader do on the other side of that door? And that's always something And the screams of the, like the rebels. It's, it's, it's everything you could possibly want. And it's, some of the best lightsaber badassery we've ever seen in such a short condensed space. And also, especially from Vader, but in this exact Vader style too. the fact that it is very, very robotic, um, but it is flick of the wrist movements, choking people out. It's uh, it feels spot on in every way. It's interesting that you say you always wondered what happened behind that door before he walked through it at the beginning of the movie. Cause I, maybe I'm just not somebody who like wonders what happened backstage, but I, I didn't wonder that maybe I'm just not like a creative thinker in that sense, but like to see it and to know now, I love that it's changed for like forever. The future viewings. Mm. I, I, I think that's, I think that's really enriching. And I mean, there's also the fact that, when we see Darth Vader be active in episode four, you're suspending disbelief a little bit because you can see him feel he's very robotic and like, and he's stiff and slow. And now knowing that it was just the other day he did this changes mm. his relationship to Obi-Wan at the end of, of episode four. It's not just an action sequence. It's not just pulp, although no. it could easily be chalked up as just like violence for violence sake. It's really interesting storytelling. Yeah, because that it shows the fact that he's further toying with Obi Wan in A New Hope, and you can see that directly. And you always could. Yeah, it's the fact that he, he does like the double step towards him and does like the circle of his saber. He's just being a big old intimidating bully um, because of what we just saw that we now can like have his quick reference of. Look, he just did the other day, and uh, Obi Wan has been doing his best to not pull out his lightsaber very often over the last twenty years, right. whereas Vader has been doing his best to pull it out as much as he bloody can. <laughs> right, right. Because it's just, he's got so much anger and hatred. And it's, uh, it also contextualizes more as well what Anakin did inside the Jedi temple. Yes. And just imagining the way, like you get to see a, a kind of a brief hologram of that in Revenge of the Sith. But um, just imagining also like 
the younglings in the council chamber. Oh, <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Can you imagine if they showed us, like if they showed us the youngling slaughter in even a fragment as much of like graphic violence as they did Rogue One, how disturbing that would be. We'd never get past the screams. it. Yeah. I, like you just, you would never be able to look at like, but that's the fine line that you're able to do. Whereas people Vader would, is still a murderer. People would he just, somehow still gets redeemed. We would look at, at George Lucas like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, <laughs> it's kind of a wonder we don't do that already. But it's just like, what did you just make? You lunatic. Okay, yeah. let's backtrack a little bit. That was your number one, but what was your number two? Uh, so my number two uh, is something that we have talked and absurd about already, and is something that uh, we kind of did just talk about right then and there, and it is the direct lean into A New Hope. That's my it number one. Fact, okay, perfect. Yeah. Excellent, then. That worked so perfectly. It's the fact that it is such a seamless transition. The fact that you have the Devastator chasing the Tantive Four, and it is... We, we, we have Leia with the plans in her hand and she gets them from Captain Antilles and like Vader's going to choke him out in just a second. And like the, it's the consular ship, Jimmy Smith's like he, he, bail just sent her. Like I, I know, I, I know the right person to send on this mission. And it just, it the seamless lineup, the white hallways of the Tantive four. And it's, it really is something. The moment when you're able to see, okay, no, this isn't just lining up. This is lining up to the minute. Yeah. This yeah. is incredible. I was not seeing that come. I didn't see it coming until I don't, I don't know how far into into the sequence, but it, it was still. I it's, it took me a while in the first viewing to really realize, no, we're not just getting close. We're getting right to the very like brim like oh, this yeah. is uh if there was a a prologue this is before the binding on the book this it's it is right there before uh everything before everything that we've like known that has started and this giant gap that at this point canonically speaking we had just 19 years of nothing and so rogue one the fact that it's still just completely wedged right up on the very edge uh it opens it up but it also shows okay like how much richness is still available. Uh, and it also pulls the wool over the fan's eyes with a surprise on something that we've known for 40 years. And so that's uh, just incredible storytelling, filmmaking, and a way to make uh, fans happy and just yeah. create a really special and memorable experience. Well, if you break Star Wars down into 20 minute installments, as we have done most notably on this podcast, it is one of the highest ranking Star Wars 20s ever because it is just so gratifying. It is exactly mm. the movie magic that I aforementioned. It is yes. it is like re the, the complete and perfect re-immersion of uh, a movie fan's experience that you really only can have once and you kind of think you're going to spend the rest of your life like trying to recapture or trying to remember perfectly just as like a Star Wars fan who revisits these movies you can't experience something for the first time twice but you can go back and learn a little bit more about it and this is the best example of that because it's like stellar filmmaking and the same way the Vader rampage kind of uh, recontextualizes how we see Vader in uh, a new hope the fact that this movie lines up perfectly with A New Hope recontextualizes how you see not only Vader, but but Leia and mm. the Death Star plans. Certainly the droids. Tarkin. Tarkin, R2 and, and, and 3PO. Um, and, and just, 
a new hope in general and, and i i know there are several people who've uh, cut the two movies together just like for the youtube uh giggles of it like to, to see how smoothly it transitions it's pretty darn cool it's pretty cool that yeah. you can do that and it would be neat to like pay you know 30 bucks to go to the movies and see the double feature and they don't even like stop the movie in between that would be really exciting it would be it'd be so weird to not have the crawl but at the same yeah, time that's true the crawl is Rogue One. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it's set up and you wouldn't be going to see it if you hadn't seen them anyway. But um, yeah, it is a really crazy. And also the fact that uh, Leslie has never uh, had never seen Star Wars before when she saw Rogue One. Oh, wow. That's so weird. This this was the first Star Wars she saw. And the second Star Wars she saw was A New Hope. That's and not so, the worst thing ever, by the way. It's, it's not. It's a no. very interesting order. And it really, I don't know, it adds something to it. I can i can certainly imagine. And she certainly likes Rogue One in part because of that. And so, yeah. Uh. For me, and I think you were probably catching on to what was happening a little faster than me, and you might have you might have mentioned it to me in the theater. But for me, what, what starts to make you sniff around what's happening is those helmets, those gray khakis and the blue shirts <laughs> and those weird swoopy helmets. You're like, I've only seen those in one other movie and most prominently in the opening way straighter yes exactly for sure and then of course the droids show up or maybe that's towards the end is that what happens the droids just have uh actually their shots only when they're on um when they're on yavin on yavin yeah okay all right well uh so our lists were pretty similar in the end not surprisingly the two big ones yeah Mel, but i thought there was some good variety in there and yeah rogue one is um it's it's I generally, I always find I go back to the Skywalker saga more common for, for rewatchability. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Rogue One is such an incredible companion piece to all of that. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's a, a, such an excellent movie and I'm uh, probably going to watch it again soon. The only honorable mention I had is just the design of Scarif, which we talked about very recently when discussing planets. Really cool planet. Mm-hmm. And as you said, like wh- when that apocalypse is happening, that really like shines a spotlight on how cool and beautifully designed it is. The tower, the yeah. citadel. Oh, it's so cool. And I, I as well, in my honorable mentions, have Scarif, um, Krennic's death in particular, um, Everything about the U-Wing, we talked about those as well. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, when they escape Jeddah and the explosion, just how incredibly visually like, just impressive that is as the planet's blowing up around them. There is no horizon. Yeah. It's just like, that is a, that's a pretty damn cool moment. We've talked about everyone except for Saw Gerrera. Any, any thoughts on him as he relates to this movie? I'm not a huge Saw Gerrera fan. I think Saw serves a very good purpose in Star Wars. Uh, and I think he's a really good baseline. And I think he's an appropriate um, example of extremism. Um, mm-hmm. But Saw is a character that I think uh, is is maybe one of the the key remnants of an, of another script. Um, and I yeah. think uh, it's just his role feels very like chopped up a bit. And the way that it was done in many like he has lines of dialogue from trailers that are not in the film. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, it, it, it just, it feels off and it doesn't align perfectly with the character that they had established before. So I'm not a huge Sagrera fan, uh, but at the same time, uh, he's interesting. His concept is really interesting. His partisans uh, create a really kind of interesting dynamic within the rebellion and how it's a re- rebel alliance, but not every rebel is aligned. He's coming back, Forrest Whitaker. Yep. 
yep, he will be back in Andor. And he was in Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, and Saw Gerrera was in The Bad Batch as well. And so it's uh, there are uh, characters in, in a lot of different things because he does show an interesting perspective. And they're also, by putting in more different things, they get to allude more to his descent into madness, which then makes the character make a little bit more sense. Anything else you want to say about Rogue One, a Star Wars story? No, I think that's uh, kind of everything is the, the main points to talk about. But, uh, I mean, there are so many... Uh, great elements we could we could we have talked about the them in 20 minute chunks yeah. so well we will certainly talk about uh, different parts again in the future okay what's going on in the news uh not a ton in the news uh dave filoni is getting himself an action figure oh cool uh, so trapper wolf uh is getting an action figure and uh the internet is in love with that it will sell so effing well yeah people love that to yeah everybody loves and adores dave filoni and that's really cool for him. And so that's uh, that was a fun thing to see. And it certainly has made its rounds on the internet. Uh, the Clone Wars uh, got uh, three daytime Emmy nominations. Uh, wow. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, I just thought that was kind of funny, though, because it's like daytime Emmys and as the differentiator because it's animation, I think. That's yeah. the, the logic Well, ki- it, kids' but... shows tend to air in the daytime. That's not uncommon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was uh, such a... An incredible final season, so I certainly hope it deserve gets its deserved win there. Yeah. Um, Star Wars Visions. So that uh, the trailer for that came out. Uh, it was really interesting. Uh, like visually, it looks really cool. The stories, uh, some seem interesting, um, and then to learn that it's not uh, canon was a kind of a, like a bit of a twist and i was a bit of, i was a bit surprised to hear that um i i really as a result of that i have no idea some of the stories from the sounds of it looks like they fit and make sense in the star wars world um and some of the stories i've got a few question marks just on the base kind of hints that they had like that seems that doesn't necessarily seem star warsy it just seems like it's maybe using some like some star wars imagery why is it not canon what does that mean why did they decide to label it as don't take this too seriously i i really don't know i think it's i think most people are seeing that as a really positive thing so that it's able to just be like a a pure uh anime interpretation of star wars uh and i think that's that's totally fine that they're doing it that as an interpretation it's just i guess maybe i was maybe a little bit more excited about the notion of it just being stylistic and stylistically done in a different way and done with like of course clear heavy influences uh from like japanese origin what as opposed to the the kind of the 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 pendulum of western american and kind of japanese samurai that star wars is but then set in space obviously having a a, a lean much more uh, one way than another um but this kind of just blows it open and makes it so i don't know it it could lead to canon stories down the line um it means it's just it's very confusing for me because I, I I want to enjoy the stories and I'm sure I will enjoy the stories, but it makes me feel almost as if they're they're not going to try to make them to build upon them because there's they're not providing a base that's consistent with the rest of Star Wars. Yeah, which I guess seems is more a little disappointing for me just because I liked the concept of doing stylistically very. Um, consistent themes but also doing like from different studios and having them um 
be totally different like short stories and so some of them could be awesome some of them could be not so great uh but i think that's also what they're going for too and um having star wars be more accessible is not a bad thing by any means uh it's just i want them to uh, also care about this project and not just say like oh we're just deferring to these studios that we've hired out because they're experts in anime well I'll make sure that you're giving them the same treatment that you give Taika Waititi uh, and uh, Deborah Chow yeah. with The Mandalorian so that they can understand the intent behind Star Wars specifically so that it feels more Star Wars and so that it will connect with the fans in a way that allows it to be a more long-standing IP or characters or whatnot that things can be built upon. That's just my personal take, but there could also be something in there that I absolutely love and then it's used as a piece of inspiration that other pieces of canon star wars use in the future uh, yeah and so you can just view it kind of like legends from the get-go and legends as i've talked about in the past treat them like legends of, of the real world the same way that like maybe we don't true. think there's a loch ness monster yeah. but there may have been thousands of years ago who knows right well, I don't know a lot about the narrative rules of anime. I haven't consumed that much anime. So, no, neither have I. Without knowing that, like maybe it's just not that conducive to canonical Star Wars. And they're just like ridding themselves of those confines right now. And they're still able to have all of the other freedoms creatively. And so mm -hmm. it could be really cool. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely could be. Yeah. Uh, and some of the imagery looks awesome. Plus, at like just some of the like because they're using so many different studios. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, six seven different studios. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, there are some of the studios that have a style that I'm like, ooh, that looks really, really cool. Um, and that makes a big that's really important for animation. Clone Wars is an amazing style. I like the Rebel style more than a lot of people. I didn't like the style of the Resistance, and the Resistance also wasn't super made for me. Um, but uh that that plays a key role yeah for sure what else you got um patty jenkins just talking a little bit more uh just about how uh much she's consuming uh of the kind of ancillary uh star wars material that she can um and, and that she's kind of diving into things and uh just that she's been provided a lot of uh freedom to tell the story that she wants but she's doing that with a the utmost of responsibility. And so that's uh, that's really nice to see, uh, as always. Um, one of the big things that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet uh, is, of course, as we were just kind of mentioning before, but uh, those people who have been trained uh, as directing on The Mandalorian are doing directing on Book of Boba Fett. Yeah. And so we're going to have uh, Robert Rodriguez, who we had known. He's going to be doing a couple. Um, and Favreau, Filoni, and Bryce Dallas Howard will also be directors. Uh, and so tomorrow Morrison was the one who revealed that. So my belief is that he was probably shouting out everybody. So I doubt there's somebody else that would be weird. Uh, and it was indicated before that Rodriguez would be doing a few. And so um, it lends some credit to the fact that it's probably going to be six episodes maybe for Book Club Fett, but that's just a, a, a hunch with uh, like crumbs of information creating said hunch. And he's the, the showrunner, right, Rodriguez? Rodriguez is the showrunner. And I, th I seem to remember you've either said factually or just postulated that John Favreau probably is just a super duper Boba Fett fan. And that's why he made The Mandalorian. And that's why he wants the chance to direct one of these. 100%. Yeah, that is 100% the case. And uh, I don't know if it's factually true or just 
well-known in like Hollywood or highly rumored in Hollywood um, that the, the original pitch was a book of Boba was, it was a Boba Fett show. Right. Um, and that it was just like, we can't use Boba Fett, um, but let's, let's go with a different character and you can still do everything that you want to do right. uh, about finding this little Yoda creature. Uh, and so, yeah, this is really exciting. Apparently it's uh, all, uh, all killer, no filler. Uh, was the words used? Uh, it is uh, in, balls to the wall. Be, yeah, intense, hardcore uh, pulls no punches, and so uh, I. But everybody keeps talking about it, like season two point five of the Mandalorian. So I'm very excited to see what that is, uh, and uh, I'm curious to know how long it'll be. But Bryce Dallas Howard, Filoni, Favreau. I mean, not one of them has not shown that they uh, can't absolutely hanging star wars any of them we could have a movie tomorrow and the fan base would be thrilled yeah so agreed yeah nice to see good is that all you got uh yeah that's all i got uh there is also uh, a book uh in the star wars visions kind of world uh and so that's interesting because it is also not canon either and it's a it's a ronin story and so it's about a, a sith ronin uh who's kind of just like a wanderer who's kind of um leading his own way of, I guess, penance with the world by exiling himself, sort of. And so an interesting sort of story, but also one that, like, once again, could be used as a great piece of inspiration for for other canon that can be used in the future. Nice. Okay, uh, a couple of birthdays. In fact, uh, a pretty good Rogue One birthday week. Uh, on Friday, July 9th, happy birthday to Jimmy Smits, who I really expect we'll see again. Uh, on Tuesday, July 13th, Harrison Ford. As big as it gets. Yeah, nice. Happy birthday to Harrison Ford. And hopefully he's recovering well. He was like pretty badly injured on the Indiana Jones set. This man is yeah. a total sucker for punishment. Yeah, he keeps hurting himself. Uh, but I've seen pictures of him in a sling. So um. I mean, he's okay. He's a badass. It, it's not even as serious as when he nearly got cut in half on the Force Awakens set. But uh, it's, it's, it's not even worrying. It's just kind of like grown worthy that he's been hurt yet again. <laughs> Yeah, and it was like in day two or something ridiculous. Happy birthday on Wednesday, July 14th to Phoebe Waller-Bridge on Thursday, July 15th to Forrest Whitaker, who we just talked about. And on Saturday, July 17th, happy birthday to Billy Lord. Nice. Listen, if you have any other thoughts about Rogue One, a Star Wars story, anything we missed on, anything you think we got wrong, you can always email recorder66podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at recorder66. Uh, rate and review on your preferred podcast app. And if you're joining us on YouTube, please like and subscribe. And until we are together again, may the force be with you.